I'm Howard Goldthwaite. I'll be your teacher for the next two and a half hours. I know, I know, it's a long time. A little bit about myself. Uh, I don't skydive, but I once zoomed in really fast on Google Earth. Uh, My my family and I have been coming to Watermark since about uh, 2000. My wife is Betsy. I have two sons, Andrew and Jonathan. They actually have moved to other cities by now, but they're grown and talk to me once in a while. Anyway. This, uh, this class, and I appreciate you coming, I really do. I've done it, I've been teaching this for a long time. I've done it, this type of thing, a uh, time or two already at Watermark, and I've done a lot of small groups. And also, it's based on the book that I wrote, Quiet Time Well Spent. It's, it's available down in the uh, book table. If you're, there's like a few of them down there. Anyway, uh, hey, we're all here. There's like 52 people signed up, which I'm really excited about it. This is a class about the spiritual discipline of spending time with God which really is one of the fundamental things you have to master to, to really grow in the faith, you know. You can't really grow without it. Anyway, I want to talk first about the, uh, the goals for the class, if that's okay. Can you see it? Can you read that okay? The first slide looked pretty. The rest of them look like this. I'm sorry. I, kind of after the first one, they kind of it's all downhill from there. But uh, we will be taking a break halfway through. If anybody faints, I'll stop, but... Probably around, I don't know, 10.30 or 10, 10, close to there. We'll do it. Uh, if you just follow along the sheet, it should, everything that's underlined, all the answers are basically underlined, unless I forgot one. So it made it pretty easy. But this is the goals for the class. Uh, oh, everybody get a handout if you would when you come in. We want to get people plugged in to God, not just to this church. If we only get people plugged into this church... Or even if you don't want to go to Watermark, if you get plugged into your church, but you don't really deepen your walk with God himself, then we, we've dropped the ball. We haven't done our job. So that's uh, really important to get plugged in. Because someday you may move away from Watermark and you won't be plugged in here anymore. And so we want to make sure your roots are in God, not just your local church. And also the second one, we want to get people to form the habit of consistent quiet times. And once we form the habit and you get in a groove, then we work on improving your skills and adding minutes and kind of, you know, making it. But until you form the habit, it's hard to really improve it. That's what I'm saying. Then the third one, this is important. Make sure we're not motivated by guilt. People walk around, oh, I haven't had a quiet time in weeks, you know. And they're burdened with guilt. That's not the goal here to make you feel guiltier at all. Guilt is a very poor motivator, very short-term motivator. We want you to be excited about, about your time with God, not just some big burden you have to bear. And then also, you hear people say, I had a quiet time this morning, and my day just went great from then on. Well, sometimes that happens, but I, I'm not going to lie to you. I've had a lot of st- days that start off with a good quiet time, and then it didn't stay good. So it's really not good day insurance. That's not what a quiet time is. It's, it's time with God. It's not just a way to have a, ensure you have a good day. And the fifth one, don't wait till you feel like having a quiet time, because a lot of times... You won't ever feel like doing it. It's just one of those things. And I've had a lot of good quiet times that started by giving myself a kick in the seat of the pants. Happens a lot. If you wait till your some inspiration strikes to open your Bible, you're going to be waiting a long time sometimes. Am I going too fast? Can you keep it? Okay. I'm going to pose a question. And this is like a group. You can raise your hand or yell it out, whatever. Which is the hardest of all these things? To go to a church service, attend a Bible study, a men's breakfast, women's breakfast, 
community group meeting, choir practice, whatever, or they just sit down and have a quiet time. Of all those things, why is a quiet time the hardest one to do? Because you don't have to get in the car and go anywhere. You don't have to really, you know, dress up. But for some reason, it's the hardest one. I think, why is it so hard? Because we often tend to gravitate towards those activities that can be noticed by others. You're nodding your head. (laughs) Why Why do we do that? I don't know. We want to, like, get points or something. We want to, like, get credit for doing stuff. And nobody sees you having a quiet time because you're off by yourself. And so it often doesn't get done. Jesus talked about this phenomenon, how people, he was very annoyed by people who like did showy acts of righteousness to get attention. In, in part of the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 6, he said, when you pray, you're not to be like the... Sorry. Try to adjust it and it falls off. Can you hear me okay? Is that better? Can you hear me? Okay. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, down the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We're not putting on a show for anybody. We're not trying to score brownie points or impress the pastor or... And yet, we're just spending time with our Creator. It's really what it is. Okay? Another question. When do we stop growing as a Christian? Usually, when you decide you've grown enough. Your body, at some point, stops growing vertically. Anyway, we may grow this way. But uh, as a Christian, you can keep growing like a reptile. Indeterminate growth, you know, your whole life. But when you decide you've grown enough, that's when people stop growing. Uh, I'm going to pose another question. What's the number one enemy to your quiet time? Anybody? Any of these? Being too tired, too busy? Okay. Too lazy? (laughs) Okay, that's good. Well, I would, yeah, too lazy is a good one. There's also, to me, the biggest enemy is not being too tired, too busy, or too sleepy. The biggest enemy to me is being too complacent. We get to a point where we just go, you know, I pretty much know what's in the Bible. I've read it. You know, I I get the idea. My thing's coming on. There we go. And uh, we have to continue that hunger and thirst for God. I had a friend once who, we were kind of having a discussion about this topic, and he said, I'm not growing much. And I said, well, do you hunger and thirst for God? He looked at me and just burst out laughing like that was just the dumbest thing you'd ever heard. (laughs) Hunger and thirst for God. What does that mean? That's really what we need to do. And sometimes God will send trials, you know, to make us... I have, like, pointy ears or something. That I'm not... They need to make, a, like, a Vulcan shape. Thing. Anyway. Hope it'll stay on. Uh, we have to keep that hunger and thirst for God. No matter what state... You know how we call ourselves fishers of men? You've heard that phrase? Well, Satan's also f- is fishing for us and for everybody else. And I cannot, you ever been to, anybody, any fishermen here with your tackle box? Some of these guys have a tackle box and they just pull them out and there's tray after tray after tray of lures and shiny things with hooks in them. And I kind of envision Satan as having a big tackle box full of artificial counterfeit things to distract us and hook us and pull us away from God. And like say, you're a, oh, you're a single guy in Dallas? I got a whole tray just for you. You're a 
busy uh, pastor in Dallas. I got a whole tray just for you. You're a single parent, got a tray for you. Well, I think like every fisherman has his one favorite lure, his one favorite old reliable that works almost every time. I think if you could pick one that Satan uses, it would be complacency. That it, he's hooked people with that. He's hooked whole churches with that. He's hooked whole denominations with complacency. And even whole countries that, that used to be zealous for God or just became complacent and just stopped growing. Remember the church in Ephesus in Revelation? Jesus told them, but this I have against you that you've left your first love. They were still believers. They still had good doctrine, but they had become complacent. They didn't hunger and thirst for God anymore. And that's kind of what a quiet time is all about. Am I going too fast? Okay. Here's a, here's a Bible trivia contest. How many titles for Jesus can you think of? Just, just shout them out. I'm, I'm fishing for one in particular. For, okay. Good. Savior. Savior. Yeah, keep going. I'm fishing for one in particular. Redeemer. What? Messiah. Yeah. Fisherman. Yeah. Lord. Hosanna. Creator. Okay. I'm still looking for one. He called himself this. Father, Son of Man, Son of David was one. Friend. Friend. I'll give you a hint. You ready? Teacher. Teacher. Okay. Here's a hint. Okay. Everybody knows it now. <laughs> Why didn't you say that earlier? Jesus called himself the bread of life. He compared himself to a food that's the most basic. It's warm. It's inviting. It fills the whole house with fresh baked aroma. And yet so often our, walk, our relationship with God looks more like this. <laughs> I know. You ever feel like your walk with God is dry and crumbly and moldy? Well, remember, Jesus compared himself to the one food that goes stale the fastest. You know? You know what I'm saying? And bread's good for like a day. And uh, when it's fresh... It looks like this, and it's warm, and you can't wait to dig into it. But if you haven't, if it's not fresh at all, it starts looking like this in a big hurry. You ever go to the kitchen to make a sandwich, and you reach your hand in the bag, and you pull one of these out, and you go, it's repulsive, really. Now, if this is what the watching world is seeing in our lives right now, stale, dry relationship, they're not gonna, we're not going to make as good of an impact as that warm, inviting kind of thing. Anyway, remember the story from uh, Exodus the Israelites left slavery in Egypt on their way to the promised land. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness and God provided manna, remember that? Which was bread that fell from heaven. And they'd go out every day and scoop it up. And it was only good for how long? One day, yeah. After that, it became disgusting. I'll read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it till morning. And it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. You can't gather a week's worth of manna, you know, or a month's worth of manna at one time. You can't have a month's worth of quiet times in one day. It's just not, you can't store it up like that. It's just not how it works. Your relationship with God has to stay fresh and daily to really be what he wants. And when Jesus called himself the bread of life, he compared himself to that manna. He said, I'm like that stuff. He said, he fed the 5,000 here in John 6, and he said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. But again, he never really said, you know, you can't get more than a day of me at a time. He, he keeps stressing that need for the daily dependence. Remember the, what he said about bread in the Lord's Prayer? Give us today our daily bread. He didn't ask for a week's worth of bread or a month's worth of bread. He said, give us our daily bread. Now, quiet time is all about seeking God. Again, it's not good day insurance. It's about seeking God. And <laughs> I can't, I can't, so, sorry. I'm going to go to the handheld. Okay. Hear me? Hear me? Okay. We're not going to look all these up, but if you... Are these written on the sheet? I hope, okay. You can look them up later. This could be one of your quiet times, looking up verses on seeking God. Uh, there's a common theme. God promises that if we seek Him... He will, let us, he will allow us to find him. God is not, well, he's, he's hiding in plain sight, you might say. He's not that hard to find. If we seek him, he allows us to find him. It's a promise in scripture for anybody who seeks him. He lets us find him. And interestingly, God is seeking you. That's a neat promise to me. He said in Second Chronicles, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Then in John 4, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And then in James, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You ever play with magnets? They're kind of fun. I always thought they were fun. And what's weird is that two magnets either repel or they attract. You know, you can either like push one around with the other one. And all it takes for two magnets that repel to become two magnets that attract is for one of those magnets to turn around. That's kind of how it is with us and God. God's always drawn us to him. But if we're like opposed to him or proud, proud or prideful, then there's a natural repelling that happens. And I, you meet people that just, they just hate God. I don't know. It's just there's a repelling there, like Bill Maher. You know, you can tell. It's funny. He, he, he doesn't believe in God, but he's mad at him. Which nobody bears a grudge against Paul Bunyan. I don't know why he's so mad at something he doesn't think exists, but he is. But if 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 there's a repelling between you and God, something needs to turn around. It's not God. It's probably probably you. Now I want to go into a section here I call substitutes for time with God. A lot of people do these things, and it's kind of a mistake. You know, we have substitutes for things in life, like butter, sugar, eggs, and tofu, vegetable, bacon down there. <laughs> you ever notice they only have substitutes for the, for the good stuff? Nobody makes a substitute for Brussels sprouts. I don't know why that is. <laughs> but people, there's, there's three substitutes that we do for our time with God. And if you would write them down, here they are. And we'll talk about each one briefly. The learning substitute and the ministry substitute and the mediator substitute. And uh, you see these everywhere. And they're in scripture and you see them in life too. Talk about the learning substitute. This person says they try to reach God simply by increasing in knowledge. Sort of like a modern day Gnostic. Gnosticism was a, was a heresy that was around during the time of the writing of the New Testament. And basically people thought, well, if I just gain enough wisdom and enlightenment, I can reach God. I don't really need Christ. I can just, the more I know, the closer I'll get to God. 
And this person says, if I can just read enough Christian books, hear enough sermons, get enough degrees, learn enough doctrines, listen to enough podcasts, then the more stuff I know, the closer I'll be to God. And that's not really necessarily the way it is. That's head knowledge, we call it, but it's not necessarily heart knowledge. There's a big difference. Uh, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. And Second Timothy 3, 7 Paul described people who were always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They were gaining wisdom and not, they were gaining knowledge but they weren't knowing God any better because they would spend time you know, reading about him but not really spend time with him. Is, I think what the point he's making. Anyway. It's easy to do that too. There's a lot of places to go learn about Christian, you know, the five points of Calvinism and this and that and all this stuff, and, and you, sometimes it's easy to let our relationship with God get lost in the shuffle. 20 years from now, if you look back on this class, what did I remember from that class I took 20 years ago? If you, if you can just remember this one thing, that, that would be a victory for me. We don't study our way to closeness to God, we obey our way to closeness to God. It's a truth from Scripture. In Christ, in uh, John 14, in his upper room discourse shortly before he was crucified, he told his disciples, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. That's a promise that if we keep his commandments and obey him and apply what we learn, then he will disclose more of himself to us. Okay? I know you to quote. Uh, this is by uh, Martin Luther. In 1522, Martin Luther said this. Oh, that God should desire that my interpretation and that of all teachers should disappear. And each Christian should come straight to the scripture alone and to the pure word of God. Go to the Bible itself, dear Christians. And let my expositions and those of all scholars be no more than a tool with which to build a right. So that we can understand, taste, and abide in the simple and pure word of God. For God dwells alone in Zion. Not a great quote. Here he was a gifted Bible teacher, and he said, you know, ignore me and just go straight to the Bible. Pretty bold, pretty bold staying, I think. Let's go on this one. The ministry substitute. This person says, if I just get really involved in the Lord's work and I'm constantly busy running around ministering, then I'll know God better. Well, not necessarily. I guess in any organization, including churches, 10% of the people do 90% of the work or something like that. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) And uh, it's a good way to get burned out, but it's not necessarily a way to know God better. Just staying busy and active, signing up for every committee. It doesn't mean you'll know God better. Remember the Ten Commandments? The first commandment was, have no other gods before me. Here's a question. Since we believe there are no other gods... How is it possible to break that commandment? Anybody? I'll answer it. Uh, Anything that comes before God is your God. Whether that thing is golf or, or, you know, your job or your looks or your income or anything that comes, your family or even your ministry. If it comes before God, it is your God. Remember the story of, that's Mary and Martha in that little painting there. 
Remember that story from, from Luke? Martha was kind of the poster girl for this, the ministry substitute. One time Jesus was at their house. And what, what a chance. Here, here's, we have the creator of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing God himself in the flesh, in your house. He's not walking on water. He's not changing water into wine. He's not raising the dead, not healing lepers. He's just hanging out. And Martha walks up and tells her, and tell, I tell her my sister wastes time listening to you, basically, is what she said. She just didn't get it. Uh, I'm going to read the quote. Anyway, I'll read this first. This is, I call her Mary and Martha Stewart because I envision her in there, you know, <laughs> whipping up a souffle and making beeswax candles and all that stuff. Try just, she was probably a gifted, you know, cook and, and very hospitable, I bet. But uh, she lost track of what the real thing was. This is the story. Now as they were traveling along, he, that is Jesus, entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So Mary was spending time with Jesus and Martha was distracted serving him, basically. It's kind of ironic. Anyway, this is a quote from uh, Oswald Chambers. You might have read the book, My Utmost for His Highest, a little devotional book, kind of a classic, Christian classic. He said, uh, he talked about uh, why there are so few fellow workers with God and so many workers for him. He said, it is never do, do with the Lord, but be, be, and he will do through you. The only way to keep true to God is by a steady, persistent refusal to be interested in Christian work and to be interested in alone, alone in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a refreshing thought? I think it is. Another example of this substitute. Remember Peter at the Transfiguration? Jesus appears on the mountain there with Moses, who's still carrying the tablets in this painting, which seemed kind of funny to me, and Elijah. And uh, it says, And while he, that is Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming, and behold, two men were talking with him. And they were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. They were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, which is typical for Peter and me. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles or, or temporary shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You've heard the saying, Don't just do something, stand there. That was the, basically the advice Peter needed to hear. Let's, let's run around with our heads cut off being busy when really God just wants you to just listen to him spend time listening to sit at his feet one more example ever read Exodus 18 that, that, that's Moses judging the people I hope anyway if you look at the book of Exodus through like chapters 3 through 17 you see some interaction between Moses and God either Moses talking to God or God talking to Moses none in chapter 18 and then in 19 through the end of the book, 
you, again, you see in every chapter, interaction between Moses and God. What happened in chapter 18 was that Moses's, Moses's ministry just kind of took over. And all he did was sit there and judge the people all day. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood about Moses from morning till evening. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing you were doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing you're doing is not good. It's a long story, but he suggested Moses needed to simplify his life, delegate a lot of this activity, and once he finally did that, he was able to spend time with God again in the book of Exodus. Ministry substitute right there. One more, the mediator substitute. This person says, since my quiet time skills aren't very good, it would be better for me to let some other more mature believer be the one who meets with God than deliver God's truths to me. Okay? I certainly can't trust my own feeble Bible study skills to understand the Bible. Better let someone better trained explain it to me than to try to meet with God myself. And, you know, this happens in, in churches with really gifted teachers. You know, I'm sure it happens here and other places, but uh, it's very dangerous. Another example from the life of uh, Moses. There was this instance where the people were told to stand around Mount Sinai and this big cloud descended over the mountain and God actually spoke to the entire nation of Israel, not just to Moses. It's really a kind of a one-time thing. All the people perceived the thunder and lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. It was pretty scary. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but let not God speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. And listen to this last verse. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. It's kind of a sad picture of the church today. The people standing at a distance, letting the pastor or the priest, whoever, meet with God and then tell us what God has to say. There's another quote I want to read uh, from Oswald Chambers again. He said, uh, he's quoting, he's talking about this very passage. Speak thou with us, but let not God speak with us. We show how little we love God by preferring to listen to his servants only. We like to listen to the personal testimonies, but they do not, but we do not desire that God himself should speak to us. Why are we so terrified lest God should speak to us? Because we know that if God does speak, either the thing must be done or we must tell God we will not obey him. If it is only his servant's voice we hear, we feel it's not imperative. We can say, well, that's simply your own idea. Isn't that true? And the Corinthians, Paul warned them. They had kind of their own mediators. They had their own little, you know, fan clubs for different teachers. Paul wrote, For I've been informed concerning you, my brother, by, my brother and by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. He was encouraging them not to have fan clubs of him or anybody else, but just to go straight to have a relationship with God. 
One more thing on this. There's a lot of titles for people who are like full-time Christian workers, clergymen, reverend, bishop, pastor, minister, priest, parson, chaplain, cleric. You ever see the word vicar? It's more of a, they say in England. Anglo, okay. It's from the Latin word vicarious. You know, if you put on like a helmet cam and you go skydiving and somebody watches the video, it's like you can vicariously live through that guy. It's from the same Latin root word. It means a substitute. The vicar is a substitute for you in front of God, which is kind of really not a biblical premise, really. At least not in, in, in the New Testament, anyway. So I'm not a fan of that word vicar. And this, this makes me nervous. One of the post titles is the vicar of Christ. You ever heard that? Any, 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 anybody ever heard that title? Like, he's called the representative of Christ on earth, which is... Makes me nervous when they say that. Anyway, one more thing. One morning, cults and false teachers love the mediator substitute because they can plop themselves down between you and God and say, from now on, if you want to go to God, you've got to go through me. And it's not a picture of me in high school, believe it or not, on the way. Uh, you know who those guys are? Anybody? David Koresh from the Branch Davidians who had the whole Waco thing happen with disaster. Who's the guy in the middle? Anybody know? Jim Jones, who, to isolate his followers, they moved to, I think, Guyana or someplace and built this place called Jonestown. And when it all started blowing up, they had them all kill themselves. It's tragic. You know who the last guy is? Harold Camping. Todd's mentioned him before. He's still alive. uh, He had this following, and he told them the world was going to end a couple years ago. And he, they had they all they just cashed in their IRAs and they bought billboards and you know the world's going to end October nineteenth I don't know two thousand eleven or something and it didn't happen and then he said oh gee I didn't carry the two in my calculation it's six months from now you know so okay they stuck with him like six more months didn't happen and finally he had to admit well I you know I was wrong and then he's he's a false teacher really. And these guys encourage you to not seek God yourself, but to seek God through them. So don't let that happen to you, you know. A quiet time fortifies you against false teaching. Anyway, Christ is our only mediator. Okay, always remember that. As Paul wrote, there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If you see this verse, at the moment Christ died on the cross, from Mark 15... And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You ever thought about what that really symbolizes? Well, in the temple days, this is like a layout of the temple. Uh, the Gentiles could hang out up here, the Israelites in here. Men could go in here, sorry. The priests could go in here. And then this little area right in here, that's the Holy of Holies. This is where the curtain or the veil was. And the high priest went in that Holy of Holies only one time a year to offer uh, atonement for the people. But at the moment Christ died, this access to God's presence in the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. I'm sure it freaked the priests out. But, and the fact that it was from top to bottom indicates it was God's doing, not man, from bottom to top, you might say. So it's really a privilege. We can now access, through Christ, God's presence like never before. Okay, what makes up a quiet time? Yes, that is some people. They'll say, well, 
when I read my daily horoscope, you know, that's my quiet time. Or when I call a psychic hotline, you know. I, I, I've taught this class a long time in small group settings, and every week we'd go around and, and people would share what they've gleaned from their quiet time. One guy, I remember, raised his hand, and I said, okay, what's that? He, he said, well, I was driving around this week, and Rush Limbaugh said something really good on the radio, and that was so-and-so. I said, okay, thanks. And then <laughs> next week comes along, and he raises his hand. Okay, so what did you glean from your quiet time? Well, listen to the radio, and Sean Hannity said something really good this week, and that was so-and-so. I said, so is that your quiet time? Listen to those guys on the radio, seriously? <laughs> Don't you, does the Bible have anything to do with your quiet time at all? And he thought that was his quiet time. And a lot of people think it's just, it's just a time to kind of, you know, get spiritual or something. And, and it's more than just that. You know, when you go to Taco Bell or Del Taco or Taco Bueno or Taco Tico, whether you get a, a taco or a chalupa or a taco salad, it's all the same stuff, really, just rolled up differently. Well, a quiet time is made up of three basic things in the Christian context, and that is this. A quiet time has three basic parts. Prayer, Bible intake, and then personal worship. Okay? And depending on day-to-day, these three elements can be mixed and matched in different ways. You know, different proportions, you might say. One... One quiet time might be 90% Bible and, and the 5 and 10% of the others. Or 90% worship and, and the small amounts of the others. But it's basically these three things. I'm going to talk about each of these in detail here. What is that? I... Should I switch? Okay. Is that better? I'm in the... I'm like singing. Anyway. Uh, there's some quotes. Just start off with some from my favorite. I'm not going to read all these, but... In, in the book, there's a section on just great quotes about prayer. And uh, here's a few. On our knees, alone before God, our lives can have an impact around the world. Prayer changes things, prayer changes people, and prayer changes people who pray. And I'm not going to read them all, but here's the top one. Prayer is more than verbally filling in some requisition blank. It's fellowship with God. It's communion with the Lord through praising Him, rehearsing His promises, then sharing our needs. Okay? Here's an I relate to this one. To spend any length of time in prayer is one of the hardest things I do. It takes all of my power of concentration to keep my attention to the business of prayer for five minutes. Why is it so hard? For one thing, prayer, while being a tremendous privilege, is our most powerful weapon against evil. Satan would rather that I engage in any activity than prayer and will always make sure there's a truckload of stresses and enticements to, to divert my attention. You're nodding your head like... I know... Five minutes of prayer. You're talking to pray for five minutes. You look at your watch, like 30 seconds has gone by. I've done that. Here's the lazy man does not, will not, cannot pray, for prayer demands energy. This is something Chuck Swindoll said. If prayer stopped, but anything else? I love that thought. 
couple more. True prayer is not a rhetorical stream of eloquent words. It's the expression of a deep longing for God that is born out of love. When we're in love with someone, we always look for ways to spend time with that person. Let's just go on and on. The prayer preceding all prayers is, may it be the real I who speaks. May it be the real thou I, that I speak to. I think I got an extra I in there. Anyway, they just go on and on. <laughs> this is good. I've often wondered why the voice of God is so quiet and still. Perhaps he is trying to train us to listen. Just as by his very quiet, the gentleman in a room full of shouting oafs eventually compels attention. Perhaps God draws us to his voice, not by out-shouting our inner babble, but by the whispered truths that reveal his character. Let's talk about types of prayer. Because there are. We're talking about prayer now. Come on. And uh, if you can remember the fifth book of the New Testament, Acts, this is a nice little acronym for different types of prayer. And not to say it's a mandate, but this is a good a good natural order to go in when you pray. Start off with adoration, maybe then move into confession, then thanksgiving, and then supplication, which is asking, making requests. It's just a good rule of thumb. I mean, I, you can mix it up. There's no mandate, but it's just, it's always good to start off, you know, praising God. Here's another acronym I like, P-R-A-Y. Similar, it stands for praise, start off with praise, then repentance, which is confession, whatever. Asking, which is supplication. And then I like this one, yieldedness. Just kind of that remembering that God is God, you're not, and just submitting to him. Oh, I caught up. Well, you're writing with your thumbs over here. You're fast on the... I couldn't do that. Anyway. Let's talk about adoration and praise. Praising is a great way to enter God's presence. It's just a great way to start your quiet time. Start with praise. So often, I'll start to pray, and the first thing in my mouth is, well, God, I need this, I need that. And it helps to just put your mind on God before you get to the, the, the requests, really. This is a verse from Psalm 100. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. It's a good way to enter, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Here's a Bible trivia question. The last five Psalms all begin and end with the same three-word sentence. Who knows what it is? What'd you say? What'd you say? Ah, oh, you're both so it's praise the Lord. You're both very close. You both won a customized complimentary watermark fanny pack. <laughs> Just pick it up at the front desk. You do pay shipping and handling. Three easy payments of nineteen ninety five each. But anyway, praise is a good way to kind of bookend anything, any time you spend with God. Open with praise and close with praise, like, like bookends on your thing. You know the, the, the Lord's Prayer? It starts off, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It ends with, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. So it's bookended with praise also. It's just a good rule of thumb. And praising God is not dependent on our circumstances, okay? I mean, it shouldn't be. <laughs> a lot of times it is. This is a verse from Habakkuk. 
that the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit in the vines, that the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, that the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. How, how could you modernize this? What are some things that could go wrong today? Anybody? Though your car repossessed, though your house is burned down, though the you're bankrupt, yeah. You're out of a job. Yeah. True. God has not changed. Our circumstances change. God does not. He's always worthy of praise, even when you're going through tough times, and there's a lot of them to go around nowadays. Todd mentioned this first. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but he's been, uh, he has cancer. And he talked about this, that he's, God is still worthy of being praised, even though we have health issues and, and so on. Go to confession. Confession is simply agreeing with God concerning your sin. It's not trying to justify you God why, to God why you did it. You know, <laughs> that's not what confession is. <laughs> it's easy to do that. But uh, in, in the book of 1 John, he said, if, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If you've ever been through uh, any kind of 12-step training, the fifth step of AA is acknowledge to God, another human being, and myself the exact nature of my wrongdoing. Which of these three is the hardest, you think? Not yourself, yeah. It's easy to lie to yourself, but you can't always lie to other people. They, they see through it. This is... Uh, This is from a, an author named Leanne Payne. And she wrote a book called Listening Prayer. And she talked about confession. She said, uh, Confession does not mean that we descend into an overly introspective or examining stance in our daily prayer. That would take our focus from God, turning our attention inward in an unhealthy way. But it does mean that we ask Christ in as much of his radiance as we can, be, as we can bear to shine into any space in our hearts and lives inner or outer, conscious or unconscious, where we may be cherishing iniquity or failing to forgive another from our heart. Now, say, say you're having a quiet time and you go to confession time and you honestly can't think of any sins you haven't confessed. You can always confess, you know, ask him to shine his light into your heart, that kind of thing. Acknowledge you're a fallen sinner saved by grace and just rem remind you that you're depending on him for forgiveness, you might say. Okay. Uh, it's possible to let confession become torturously introspective and take your eyes off God. So you're morbid, morbidly focused on yourself or your sin that you forget about God. There's a quote from Ignatius, who was a monk in the, like the 14, 1300s. He talked about during his confession time, he would like, you know, whip himself and like wear heavy chains and turn off all the, shut all the windows and not eat. And I don't know. It's almost like he's trying to pay for his own sins, really. It's what it looked to me. But that's kind of overboard. You don't need to whip yourself or any of that stuff. And he talked about how hard to whip yourself. He went to detail. Don't go all the way to the bone, you know, with the thing. Just, just kind of, you should only be in the flesh, not the bones. It's kind of creepy, but anyway, don't do that. 
Confession is healthy. If you have a sin and you don't confess it, it, it becomes a real, it just weighs you down. David wrote about this. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Like, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There's another famous prayer of confession in Psalm 51. So sometimes those are good to meditate on for that. Let's go to Thanksgiving. Saying thank you is a way to give God the glory instead of giving yourself the glory. I earned the money to buy this new car or whatever, you know. It's, it's giving God the glory. Remember the story of the ten lepers? Ten, ten people with leprosy went to Jesus. They asked to be healed. God, he healed them. Nine just went on their way, but one came back and said thank you. Remember that? And he was a Samaritan, which, you know, was kind of surprising. And, and Jesus said, uh, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Here's a question. Which is easier to teach a two-year-old to say, please or thank you? Please. And why is that? Yeah, they want something. So, they, okay, well, say please. And they, then they give it to them. Once they've got their thing, off they go. You've got no more leverage. <laughs> but I think when we say thank you to God, we've, you know, it's not that we're trying to manipulate him. It's a, it's a way of saying, of honestly, genuinely praising him for, for, for his provision. Going to asking, which often calls supplication. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Uh, I'll read this verse in a second. Notice how thanksgiving is coupled with asking. It's like almost like in one sen- same sentence. As we, offer thanks before the, as we offer thanks before the request is answered, it demonstrates our faith as we pre-thank God for his future answer. Here's what he wrote. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And as you thank him, it reminds you that he's going to answer this request in his own wisdom and his own timing. And remember, no request is too difficult for God. This is one from Jeremiah. Our Lord God, behold, I, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Sometimes I just go outside and look up and think, well, if God can keep all these stars <laughs> moving like a gigantic clock in perfect precision, I guess he could handle my visa bill or, you know, whatever. He's in control. Here's a question. Hold all my calls. It's okay. Is faith believing God can or believing God will? What do you think? Will? Okay, can. Sometimes <laughs> it's hard to know, you know. It's definitely believing God can because nothing's too difficult for God. But sometimes there's a sense that we kind of defer to God's will, you know. There's another acronym, P-U-S-H, pray until something happens. <laughs> Push. I do that a lot. You know, God... Here's a suggested answer, you know, and I, 
But again, I defer to your judgment and your timing because you know better. But again, here's my idea of a good way to solve it. Uh, here's an interesting question. In Matthew 6, 5, this is when Jesus was teaching on the Lord's Prayer. He told us not to pray with meaningless repetition. But in Luke eleven eight and eighteen one, he told us to pray with perseverance. So in your own words, what is the difference between meaningless repetition and perseverance? Anybody? Go ahead. Yeah, just repeating it by rote, like a memory thing, isn't really genuine prayer. You're right. Yeah, okay. That's a good, that's a good answer. Uh, you ever seen these things in Eastern religions? Prayer wheels? You ever heard of these? The Hindus, <laughs> what they do, they're hollow, and they, they open it up, and they write their prayer down. They put it inside this thing, and they spin it around. And every time it spins around, that prayer goes up to heaven one time. They just walk around spinning it and spinning it and spinning it. And these are, you know, medium size. And then, can you see the people at the bottom of this picture? That's a gigantic prayer wheel filled with prayer requests. And they push it around. And, and it, to me, that's just the epitome of meaningless repetition right there. I don't know. Just, it's sad. It's, it's an example of how false religion does more harm than good, Really. But they have these in temples, Buddhist temples and Hindu temples and stuff, that kind of thing. It's like a weapon there, like he's going to chase them. I encourage people to pour out your heart to God. Uh, sometimes, you know, I have a friend who's a, who's a Catholic, and I'm not, <laughs> don't want Catholics, but he, he was talking about a, a problem he was having. I said, well, have you prayed about it? And he said, well, I just can't find a prayer that expresses my heart. He thought that's how it worked. You find a prayer already written that matches what you feel, and then you pray that prayer. Well, to me, no. Pour, prayer is pouring out your heart. Remember that? Remember see Forrest Gump? Remember Lieutenant Dan, that character? When, the hur- when they're on the shrimp boat and the, and the hurricane hits, and he climbs up on the mast, and he's, okay, God, we're going to have it out right here. That's kind of an example of pouring your heart out to God. It really is. And and I, I, I uh, minister in the Great Questions class, and a lady came the other day, and she had a gut-wrenching story about some stuff that happened to her kid, and I don't want to go into it, but I encouraged her just to pour out your heart to God. She was mad at God for letting it happen, and, and I, I said, just tell God you're mad, you know. Pour out your heart. Sometimes it's a trickle, sometimes it's like Niagara Falls. It just, it just all comes gushing out at once, but that's a good way to think of prayer, is pouring out your heart to God. Talk about yieldedness for a second. Uh, yieldedness is a sense of letting be or submission to the will of God and his lordship over every area of your life, which brings tranquility, peace, and serenity. That's when Jesus said, not my will, be do- not my will but thine be done. This is a classic verse, Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I am God. What are some other ways of Modern day paraphrasing that that phrase: "Cease striving and know that I'm God." Say it again. Yeah, be still and know that I'm God. What else? Like, <laughs> chill out, <laughs> relax, take a chill pill. I, I'm in charge. I'm God. You know, you're not. You can relax about it. Don't stop fighting me. Stop kicking and screaming and yelling. There's a German word that. We really don't have a, a comparative English word for Galassenheit. 
it's, it means this yieldedness to God. It's something the Amish and the Mennonites teach. Not that I'm trying to convert you to being Amish or Mennonite, but it's just a sense of a lifestyle of just submission and yieldedness to God's will that, that is big in their doctrines. Uh, remember the parable of sower? The guy went out throwing seeds, and some fell in the hard, rocky soil, and some in the weedy soil, and, the, and then some in the good soil. If your heart was like a garden, how would you prepare that so the seeds could grow better? What would you do? That's a kind of a weird question, I guess. So if you're a gardener, how would you prepare the soil? You'd soften it up, you'd take the rocks out, you'd make sure it had sunshine and water and nutrients. And that's what we need to do with our hearts, you know. Feed your heart, feed your soul. And that's what the Bible does. That's what good teaching does and prayer does. In Psalm 23, that's the shepherd psalm. He talks about how solitude restores the soul. And there's something very refreshing and, and rest- restorative about time with God and serenity and just getting away from the stress and just calming and sitting before God. And an attitude of yieldedness, last thing in prayer, makes a great transition to your Bible intake, which we'll talk about next. Now that you're kind of in a mindset of yieldedness to God, you remind yourself that He is God, you're not. You open the Bible and start reading what you find. So, the role of the Word in your quiet time. Have you ever seen the phrase GIGO or GIGO? Have you ever seen that? It's a little acronym. It stands for either two things. Either God in, God out, or garbage in, garbage out. Like your brain's like a computer. It's going to churn around on what you put into it, basically. Until you have a garbage, and that's what you'll be. There's Proverbs that say, the mouth of fool feeds on folly. There's one that says, the mouth of fool spouts folly. Well, it's a perfect example of this, garbage in, garbage out. And the Bible is how we fill our minds with the good stuff, you might say. Paul wrote, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the world's constantly bombarding us with its own value system and its own everything. And we have to counteract that with with input from God's word. Here's another verse from Romans. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You know, for if you're awake for like, I don't know, 16 hours a day, probably... Fifteen or more of those hours, you're being bombarded with the world's value system, really. That's pretty much how it works. So you've got to kind of counteract that. Here's something else Paul said to meditate on. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. It's so easy to be distracted from the good in life and just focus on all the negative stuff. Oh, it's so easy. And sometimes you meet people that they focus so much on the negative stuff, they become that. Even though they're against it, they become that. I hate that guy because he's a jerk. Well, they become a jerk because they focus on the guy so much. You ever heard of target fixation? I like to ride motorcycles, and this was talked about. My wife gave me a book, Idiot's Guide to Motorcycles, so I guess it makes sense. Is that you're, we go where our eyes go, and here's what it works. Your motorcycle goes where your eyes are focused. If you see some debris or obstacle in the road, 
Don't look at it or you'll hit it. Look where you want to go and the motorcycle will follow. It's true. If you see a pothole, if you stare at the pothole, you'll just run right into it. But once you know it's there, look where you want to go and then you'll go there. And that's how life is. And the Bible gives us the proper values to focus on, the right target, you might say. That's not me in the picture, by the way. Not that macho. Uh, there's some quotes about what people have said about the Bible. And I'm not going to read them all, but they're in the book. Men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. Not true. <laughs> if a man's Bible is coming apart, it's an indication he himself is fairly well put together. When a Bible's well used, the devil's not amused. I always love that one. One proof of the inspiration of the Bible is that, is that it has withstood so much poor preaching. It's not enough to own a Bible, we must read it. It's not enough to read it, we must let it speak to us. It's not enough to let it speak to us, we must believe it. It's not enough to believe it, we must live it. Application. The Word of God is to the Christian life what wood is to a fireplace. Not a simple thought. There are more Bibles, this is Rick Warren from the Purpose Driven Life. There are more Bibles in print today than ever before, but a Bible on the shelf is worthless. Millions of believers are plagued with spiritual anorexia, starving to death from spiritual malnutrition. To be a healthy disciple of Jesus, feeding on God's word must be your first priority. Jesus called it abiding. Isn't that good? And the Bible talks a lot about itself. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, I don't know what your favorite book is, Huckleberry Finn. I can't imagine reading that every day and having it still be living and active, you know. But the Bible is. For some reason, it's still living and active. Even though you've read it for decades, maybe, it's still alive. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. That's the kind of hungering and thirsting we talked about earlier. History talks a lot about the Bible. It's the most reliable of all ancient writings. It's compiled over about 15 centuries. 66 books. Finally compiled officially in the year 397 to certify which book should be included in the, at least in the New Testament. And as we consume the Bible, there's three basic ways to do it. Reading, memorizing, and meditating. Talk a little bit about each one of those. And there, there, there's a, I like this example here. Reading is like brushing steak sauce on a steak. Memorizing and meditating gives you prolonged, extended exposure to those truths, kind of like an overnight marinade. Really letting them soak deep in. Everybody's getting hungry here. Coming up on the break. Not almost there yet. Hang on. Uh, we read the Bible not simply to gain information, but to gain inspiration. Oh, again. We read the Bible not simply to gain information, but to gain inspiration and transformation. As Blake Holmes always says, we're not here to make smarter sinners. You know, it's not just so you can gain. There's a lot of people with seminary degrees. Like, there's an author, Bart Ehrman. You ever heard of him? He's on every Discovery Channel episode about the Bible. He doesn't even believe it, but he's like a PhD, philosophy, I mean, a theologian, and he's not even believing God. Anyway, sad. I talked about this. 
Uh, Solomon talked about the importance of, of how he described memorizing. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live, and my teachings is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart. And a great way to chiseling it into your heart is a good way to ma- imagine memorizing. David wrote, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Against you. Here's an easy way to memorize. When you read the Bible, keep a small pad of paper or three by five cards handy. And when you find a verse that really speaks to you that day, just write down the card. Put it in your pocket or your purse. I like if it's next to your keys, every time you reach for your keys, you'll find that thing. Oh, what's it? And you and you read it again. And by the end of the day, it's usually memorized. It's like it's just it's that easy. Because you'll see it several times that day and and it really works. Here's another thing you can do. If you like, say, exercise, say you're going to do a set of push-ups, okay? And I'm going to do 10 push-ups. Instead of counting to 10, you can count syllables or words of your favorite verse. Here's an example. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's 10 syllables right there. That's a set of 10 push-ups. You going to do 10 more? He leadeth me beside the still waters. That's, that's 10, 10 syllables. Do you want to do 30 push-ups? He maketh me lie down in green pasture. That's, that's another 10. You want to do 20 more? He restoreth my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name. That's 20 syllables. I've counted them. You do 25 more? This is true. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. That's 25 syllables. Okay. That's up to 75. You do 10 more push-ups? Thy rod and thy staff, they comforteth me. That's 10 more. That's 85. That's pretty good. Just find your favorite verse, count the words, count the syllables, and when you do, you know, sit-ups or whatever you do, remember, just review that instead of counting, using numbers. Anyway. You know all the prosperity preachers we have today, if you send me $10, you'll get 100 that, you know, whatever the four, They've never jumped on the memorizing bandwagon, but God promises we'll prosper. And bear in mind, there's more kinds of prosperity than just, you know, silver and gold and hedge funds and IRAs and all that stuff. And there's more kinds of poverty than just bounce checks and no utilities and repossessed cars. But he says, Joshua said, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. And then David also wrote in Psalm 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be, bless you, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. So there's a promise there. We'll, pro- we'll spiritually prosper. Can't guarantee you'll be a billionaire, but you'll prosper. Have you ever been here? Cosmic Cafe? Nobody been there? It's on Oak Lawn? You ever been there? Okay. You- <laughs> it's quite cosmic. You- okay, you've been there. It's a restaurant. It's all vegetarian food. It's a it's a total mashup of like Hindu, Buddhist stuff. There's statues of Buddha and Ganesha and Krishna inside there. <laughs> Why am I saying this? Because I'm talking about meditation. Eastern meditation empties your mind, but Christian meditation fills your mind with God's truths. 
And here at the Cosmic Cafe, this first floor is the restaurant, and this top floor is a meditation room, okay? And when you go up, the, there's a stairway, and halfway up the stairway, there's a landing. At the landing, you see this sign. That just totally sums up the whole idea of Eastern meditation. Just leave your mind at the door. You won't need it. I remember I I taught uh, Bible study since college. I remember in college asking this guy uh, to open us in prayer. Okay, his name was Monty. And he prayed, God, just eliminate our minds. And I, uh, you know, did he just say illuminate our mind or did he say Eliminate it. So next week, I, I call on him again because I want to find out. I say, I say, Monty, would you pray for us? And I listen. You know, he says, God, just eliminate our minds. So I never called on him again to pray. But he was saying, he asked God to eliminate our, eliminate our minds. That's not the Christian perspective on what to do with your brain, you know. We fill our minds. We use our minds. We fill them with God's truths. We don't just leave them at the door. We're going to talk about uh, when you uh, examine a passage, how to sift that passage, you might say, and glean as many truths as you can from whatever that passage is. On archaeological digs, they have these screens, and they, like, dump the dirt in there, and they sift it, and they sift through the dirt, and they look for little, you know, diamonds or arrowheads or relics or whatever they're looking for. Kind of, the, you do that same thing when you sift through the passages, of the, and we're going to talk about three different screens, kind of a big one with big holes, medium, and then tiny ones. And the first one is, I call, it, it, these are the three things we do. The three types of questions you ask, and we'll talk about each one. You go through observation, interpretation, and application on any passage. And uh, I talk kind of fast, so I'll make sure you have time to write that down. So in closing, let me say that I'm sorry. We're talking about uh, when you when it's okay <laughs> when you sift through a passage. There's basically three kind of screens. I showed this lovely visual here of how you sifting through like an archaeological site, and you ask three types of questions: observation, interpretation, and application. And when you do observation, you ask, what does it say? When you do interpretation, you're asking, what does it mean? The application, what does it mean to me? Specifically to me, okay? Talk about observation. Basically, you're like being a reporter or a detective. You're asking who, what, when, where, how, and why. What's this past? Ooh, turn the page. <laughs> I didn't know that was coming up. <laughs> Everybody at once. You know, the basic questions, who's saying what, where are they, are they in a city, are they talking about a dream they had, is it some future event, whatever. Basic kind of investigative questions. Whoa. Yeah, okay. You just, you just kind of be thinking about all these things in general. Then you move on to interpretation. You ask, what does it mean? And uh, it's always best when you're trying to find out what Scripture means it's to let Scripture interpret other Scripture. Uh, not just, it prob- you know, 
you can speculate, but the best source for understanding Scripture is other Scripture. Uh, and we interpret unclear passages in light of clear passages. Sometimes you'll find a passage that it's a little vague, you might think, and it, well, it might mean this, but we have 20 other passages that are crystal clear that, may, that don't mean that. So that sheds light on the unclear one. And I would encourage you to uh, start collecting cross-references in your Bible. A lot of Bibles haven't printed in there already. But like you'll be reading a verse and you'll find it on one topic. And you'll say, hey, this sheds light on a verse over here, you know, three books away or whatever. And so just write it down at both ends. That way next time you come back that way or you're doing a study or whatever, you can easily gain more light on it. And it's always fun to just... Find like a theme. This was on the fear of the Lord on verse 26. I'm pointing at my screen. You can see it. There. On the fear of the Lord. I thought that's an interesting thing to do a study on. So I started looking at other verses on it and just writing them down. Some people collect ceramic owls or antique cars or whatever. Start collecting cross-references. They're free. And they're very helpful. You don't have to dust them off. Also, we interpret experiences in light of Scripture, not Scripture in light of experiences. There'll be people who like to say, well, well, I had a dream that I should be doing this, even though, you know, and it overrules what the Bible said. Or somebody will walk up with a prophetic word, and they'll say, you know, something, you know. And it doesn't veto what the Bible already teaches, any of that stuff. Make sure the Bible is the final authority, Okay. Accurate interpretation is critical. Here's a couple passages. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but, but, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the Bible is not just one big abstract expressionist painting that you can just kind of read anything you want to into. And some people look at it like that. But it's not what it is. Then Peter goes on to talk about Paul's writings. He said, Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you also as also wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, but misinterpreting scripture is a dangerous thing to do, because you'll teach yourself the wrong thing, you'll be teaching other people the wrong thing. It's bad. Uh, as you Interpret stuff. Determine the literary form of what you're reading. Is it literal? Is this, you know, stuff that actually happened, or was it like a dream that happened, or what? Is it a discourse as a sermon or a conversation? Is it a narrative, like telling a story? Is it poetic? Or like teaching, talking in poetic terms, like God rides on the wings of the dawn, or something like that, you know? Poetic. Is it a parable that is uh, Christ taught in parables, which were most likely fictional stories used to teach or illuminate a truth? Is it apocalyptic, meaning talking about future events? So determine the type of form you're reading. Also determine if a figure of speech is used. For example, Christ said, I am the door. Remember that in John 10? Does that mean if you interpret that literally, was he a door walking around? You know, no. What is he... A good passage that sheds light on this one would be uh, John fourteen six, which says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When Christ said, I am the door, he was saying, I'm how you have access to God. Okay. 
What idioms? Don't <laughs> not idiot, but idioms. That word. It's like it's like hungry enough to eat a horse. You know, bring me a donut and step on it. Those are like idioms. Idioms. And if you interpret them literally, sometimes you can get into trouble. But you have to understand the language and the culture. Jesus used some figures of speech. Remember Matthew seven. He talked about logs and specks. Remember that? I've never seen anybody that actually had a log sticking out of their eye. If I do, I'm calling 911. But I've met a lot of people that have major blind spots, hypocrites that love to point out problems in other people. And when he said, pluck out your eye in Matthew 5, I don't see a lot of people with eye patches walking around Watermark, but, but, but there's a lot of people who have taken serious steps to correct Jesus meant take serious, take your sin seriously and take serious steps to correct your sin. That's what he's getting at. In John 16 there, uh, he's talking about his crucifixion and, and his, his disciples go, oh, so, wait a minute, is this a figure of speech or what? You know, <laughs> they kind of asked him, are you using a figure of speech this time or not? It's kind of a funny story. Anyway, uh, this is important. Determine if something, a principle or a precept. And you go, huh? What does that mean? Well, to understand whether something being said is a principle or a precept, take into consideration cultural and historical settings. And here's the difference. A principle is an example of a general truth applied in an ever-changing culture or situation. I'll give you an example in a second. A precept is a timeless, unchanging commandment or truth and does not change throughout the centuries. Like, have no other gods before me. That's across the board, timeless, Precept. Okay, here's an example. Remember when Paul talked about uh, telling women how to dress <laughs> in in First Timothy two, and he and he said he told women to dress modestly and discreetly, and that's a priest that's unchanging. Women should always, you know, dress modestly and discreetly, and those those standards of modesty, I suppose, change. I mean, if you look at the swimsuits women wore back around the early 1900s, I'm surprised they didn't drown swimming in those things. But, uh, so those standards do change. Then he said, he also said not to braid their hair. Remember that? Well, that seems kind of legalistic. Why can't a woman braid her hair? You know, there's probably people here braiding their hair today. Here, here, let me look at this. See this picture? That's a pagan, it's a statue of a pagan cult goddess, prosperity, fertility goddess. And I don't know what's going on in her chest. I'm afraid to even talk about that, but. Look at her hair, okay? See this? It's, it's all braided up there. And I think what Paul was saying was don't let a fashion trend identify you with the wrong values, with the wrong set of values. And that is true today, right? I mean, there are fashion trends that say you're one set of values or you're this set of values if you follow that fashion trend. I think, I think, I could be, these look like pearls around her neck. He, Paul also mentioned pearls. In that same passage, I guess it has, you know, a prosperity message kind of thing. Look at all the pearls I've got or something. But So it helps to understand the culture when you find a passage like that to determine whether it's a principle or a precept. And, you know, all the best cookies are on the bottom shelf when you read the Bible. It takes a lot of digging and, his, and studying and, you know, searching out and cross-references. And you can look at, you know, commentaries and, and, and talk to scholars and that kind of thing. Let's go on to application. This is the third screen, remember? Those third screens. This one has the finest holes of all. 
As you're sifting these passages, you're asking, what does it mean to me? How can I apply this? Is there something God wants me to do? Okay? Uh, this can be the most painful part of, of, of Bible study. Because God might want you to do something you might not want to do. Or stop doing something you want to do. Uh, this passage, Luke 6.46, says, uh, he said, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? I had a friend once, he told me there's two words that cannot be spoken truthfully back to back. No, Lord. It's true. That James passage talks about being, don't just be merely hearers, but doers of the word. And that John 8, 31, 32, that's that, you ever heard the verse, truth will make you free? People throw that phrase around all the time. I've told the truth to a lot of people and it made them mad. (laughs) You ever done that? Or it made them laugh. Now, in, in that passage, the truth-making-your-free part is the, is the fourth part of, of, of four. It goes, if you abide in my word, then you're truly to my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you tell somebody the truth who is not abiding in his word, it makes them mad. You can't just skip right to the freedom part if you don't have the abiding part. Anyway, uh, application... Obedience is the key to God disclosing himself. We talked about that a little bit earlier. And I think I read this verse earlier. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. And again, if you, 20 years from now, if you remember one thing, this is it. You don't study your way to closeness to God. You obey your way to closeness to God. So if I see me 20 years from now, I'm going to ask you, do you remember what I said? Anyway. Here's a little acronym. Hope you all can remember. And I encourage you uh, to make a bookmark maybe and put this on there. If you can remember the word present, God has a present for you if you can remember this word. It's an acronym for when you study the Bible and you're trying to apply what you're learning. This is specifically for application. Is there a promise to claim? Is there a rule to obey? Is there an example to follow? Is there something God wants me to do? Is there an error to avoid? Or is there any new thought about God himself? Okay? Anybody bring a Bible today? Hopefully. I want to take a few minutes here. Everybody, if you could, please, if you don't have a Bible, get with somebody who does. Turn to Matthew 7. And what I want to do is, I want you to look at these verses 24 through 27. And using this P-R-E-S-E-N-T, I want you to uh, just go through it. And we'll take about five minutes or so. And you can work either by yourself or with a group, whatever you want to do. And as you go through each of these, we're going to ask, and in five minutes, is there, did you find any promises? Did you find any rules? Did you find this or that? So go ahead and do that if you would. Turn to Matthew 7, 24 through 27. It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Pretend you're having a quiet time. And just sift through these, these, these verses with, these, with this little acronym, and we'll see what kind of stuff we can learn, okay? Five minutes.
What is a promise you saw from this past? Anybody, just... Go ahead. That was Matthew 7? Okay. Good. What, somebody else said something? Say it a little louder. Yeah, if you listen to his command, your house will be founded on the rock. That's a great promise. Any other promises? If you look, you'll be wise, yeah. It's wise, okay. Anybody else? One of the promises is that storms will come. You know, <laughs> you may not like that promise, but it's there. And there might be some overlap here, but any rules to obey? Maybe it's obvious, but. Are you, did you, Matthew seven twenty four through 27? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Somebody else? Oh, obey, yeah, that's a rule. Obey the commands. It's pretty obvious, but yeah, obey the commands. Any examples to follow? There's like two examples. One to follow, one. Yeah. Yeah, be like the guy who built on the rock. I guess the errative word would be the guy who built on the sand, you know, skipping ahead. Uh, something God wants me to do? Build your life on the rock, yeah, sure. Any new thought about God himself? Oh, wait, say go ahead. Build your life on a solid foundation, exactly. Yeah. That's a definite something he wants you to do. Here's a word and put it to use. Exactly, yeah. Exactly right. This, this, whole, this whole passage is a passage about application, which is one of the reasons I picked it. But A new thought about God himself, anybody? He is our rock. That's a good way to put it, yeah. He, he wants to warn us. Yeah. He wants to warn us that we'll have a good life. So, there's a lot of truth you can glean from these things if you have a lot. If you ask a lot of the right questions, and that's an example. So, hopefully, you can make a bookmark. You look like a <laughs> you got a blanket like a like a toga or something up here. <laughs> I need one of those. A blanket. Anyway, let's go on. Let's talk about worship. And when I say the role of personal worship, I don't mean worshiping yourself. That means worshiping by yourself. Worship, well, used to be spelled worth-ship, but you had to wipe your chin off every time you said it. So it was spelled, now you just got lazy and called it worship. And we've been created to worship God. I, th- I think there's an innate sense in all of us to worship something. A warped version of that is the you see the worship of like rock stars and sports celebrities and actors and people. People worship other people. It's kind of amazing that the 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 links they'll go to to be around them. But uh, Isaiah wrote, "The people that I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise." We're designed to worship. Uh, I'm going to skip this other quote, but 
Uh, here's a couple quotes on, on worship. In today's competitive culture, we are taught to never give up and never give in. So we don't hear much about surrendering. If winning is everything, surrendering is unthinkable. We would rather think about winning, succeeding, overcoming, and conquering than yielding, submitting, obeying, and surrendering. But surrendering to God is the heart of worship. Worship is far more than praising, singing, and praying to God. Worship is a lifestyle of enjoying God, loving Him, and giving ourselves to be used for His purposes. When you use your life for God's glory, everything you do can become an act of worship. What's the last thing they say at the end of a worship service here at Watermark? Have a great week of worship, yeah. It's not, see you next Sunday, or, you know, take care. It's have a great week of worship, because worship doesn't stop when you leave the service. And worship doesn't stop when you stop your quiet time, either. Worship is like an umbrella that just, your whole life is an act of worship. Remember this, God is the star of your quiet time, especially when it comes to worship. I know there's parts of your quiet time when you're praying about needs or praying about, you know, other people that have needs or whatever or praying that God, you know, this happens. But especially during worship, it's totally God-centered. It's not problem-centered or human-centered. Worship is God-centered. Here's a question. We talk about why is prayer so hard. Why is worship so hard? Anybody? Because we're selfish. Anybody else? That's a good answer. It's hard to top it. (laughs) We're prideful, you know, and we want to be worshipped instead of worship somebody else sometimes. Where do we learn to worship? In church or on retreats or maybe your family worshiped? Usually when you learn to worship, you're kind of a passive worshiper. There's a worship leader. You know, okay, everybody turn to this page. Let's all sing this song. Let's stand up. Let's kneel, whatever. You're kind of responding to somebody else telling you what to do. When you're on your own, sometimes you don't know, what do I do? Nobody's telling me what to do. How do I worship? Well, this is very freeing, really, once you, once you start doing this. Worship like nobody's watching, watching, you know, like dancing. But uh, uh, it's easy to, to let somebody else tell you how to do it. But when you're on your own, you don't know what to do. Let me read another quote. Uh, here, beloved, is the key to any meaningful study of praise. This is Dick, Dick Eastman, a writer. Effective praise has its focus on our Lord alone. The more we're able to focus our praises exclu- exclusively on the nature and character of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the more power we will experience as a result of praise. So it's focused on His character, not just, you know, God, thank you for my... This or that. That's, you know, thanking, but praising him for his character and his love. And uh, in James 4.10, it said, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So humbling yourself. What is humbling? How do you humble yourself? Anybody? How do you humble yourself? Yeah. Through accountability. To yourself or to God and to others. Sure. You People... People want to, we want to be our own set of standards of right and wrong, you know. We don't want to be accountable to anybody. But when we humble ourselves, we're acknowledging he, we're, we're submitting to him. Very good. Okay. Great. Worship has a way of inviting God closer. 
And uh, when Solomon uh, finished the temple, and they had this big ceremony, and uh, they had the music and all, I'm going to start halfway through. He indeed is good for his loving. Indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with the clouds that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. When they worshipped him, it invited him closer. You might say, and the same thing happens in our lives. What about worshiping through drudgery? You know, not every day is a mountaintop experience. You know, you get up, you go to work, you come home. <laughs> still, those days, God still deserves to be worshipped, even on days like that. What's so funny? Okay. <laughs> that is funny. Okay. Uh, th- I'm going to read a quote. Uh, this is this is uh, Oswald Chambers again. It do- it does require the supernatural grace of God to live 24 hours in every day as a saint, to go through drudgery as a disciple, to live an ordinary, unobserved, ignored existence as a disciple of Jesus. It is inbred in us that we have to do exceptional things for God, but we have not. We have to be we have to be exceptional in the ordinary things, to be holy in mean streets among mean people, and this is not learned in five minutes. But uh, the world can be a mean place sometimes, and uh, God still deserves to be worshipped even on a, on a day when you know people are being mean to you. <laughs> uh, we talk about I think everything you do can be an act of worship. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then in Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You ever feel like, I'm going to clean out these gutters to God's glory, or I'm going to do this spreadsheet for God's glory? You know, well, you can. I'm going to change this diaper to God's glory. You can that that's a hard attitude you should, everybody's laughing but it's true. Now if you do it if you don't feel like I'm doing this for my boss or the client, you know, you may not do as good of a job, but if you're doing it for God, you know, it's, it becomes an act of worship. Good. Boredom busters. Part of being having a quiet time is to get in a routine without getting in a rut. Okay? It's easy to get in a rut. I'm going to talk about some things you can do to kind of break the boredom, the monotony, and shake things up, you know. I'm just going to read some of these. One, change the noise level. If if you're used to being quiet, try being loud. Blare some music, you know, some praise music. A quiet time can run the gamut from be still, as in Psalm 46, to the resounding symbols that mentioned in Psalm 150. Try singing. If you're not a gifted singer, you can sing along with a recorded piece of music or that kind of thing. There's a site called Hymnsite, H-Y-M-N-S-I-T-E, and you can scroll through all these hymns and they're just instrumentals and you can sing along with it right there on your laptop, you know, so. They're, they're pretty fast. They go, da da It's pretty funny. Anyway, uh, seasonal events. And the Bible is filled with, the Old Testament with feasts and festivals and special events and, uh, you can celebrate a special quiet time at Christmas or a Resurrection Sunday, which is Easter. 
or maybe your rebirth day or your anniversary, the anniversary of some great answered prayer. Like, can I just find an event and celebrate it? Engage the senses. This was in the, in the old temple worship. They had a special recipe for a special formula for, for incense, so it had a certain smell when you went in. And maybe you could uh, put some spices on or something, you know, to kind of provoke, uh, engage the senses. If you're reading a verse and it mentions honey or bitter herbs, maybe go taste some, and it really helps bring that passage to life. If you're, say, reading about uh, the crucifixion, maybe go feel a tree trunk or something, just kind of get a feel for what it must have felt like to be against that, that wood or go go feel some thorns, you know, to see what it was like or some or thorns on a, on a, for the crown of thorns. Just be creative. Bring, f- use your senses to bring those passages to life, is what I'm saying. Uh, fasting, uh, it can free up a lot of time. Spend time you'd normally spend, you know, buying food or doing dishes or whatever, you can spend that time with God. Or feasting, a little more popular. Maybe you could have your own communion. I know Todd often mentions every meal, in a sense, is communion because of, the, of God's provision. Maybe just eat a meal of fish and bread if you're talking about, that, if you just read that passage of feeding the 5,000, see what they went through, kind of bring that passage to life. Object lessons. I know Jesus, one of his favorite teaching techniques was object lessons. He'd like hold up an object, like a, you know, he, or he'd mention what, a tiny mustard seed, a coin, the birds of the air, the flowers of the field. A piece of bread, a child, you know, wine, whatever. Use these as a springboard for meditation and praise. Maybe if he mentions a coin, put a special coin in your pocket, and just every time you feel it that day, that verse will come back to life. Maybe if you're a creative uh, artist, create a piece of art. I know we always do it with kids in Sunday school. Draw, paint, sculpt, whatever you want to do. Or if you're not good, you can just look at inspiring pieces of Christian art, even. You could visit a worshipful church or cathedral. I know sometimes the most worshipful churches to me are when they're totally empty. I don't know why that is. There's something solemn and reverential about a totally empty church sanctuary. Uh, you could build your own altar or plant a tree as a reminder of something God has done. You could try praying or worshiping in just a new position instead of standing or kneeling or laying flat on your face or whatever. Just try something different. I know uh, Psalms mentions worship the Lord in holy array. Maybe you have a special prayer shawl or something you, you have with you, you know. I know people have beads uh, on a string they pray with sometimes. Try writing. Take a prayer journal or a praise journal. Maybe write your own song of praise. You can make an acrostic. Like say you struggle with faith. You can write F-A-I-T-H and then think of a word that goes with each one of those things and use that as a springboard to praise. Write your own version of Psalm 136, which is uh, every other verse is God's love and kindness is everlasting. It's kind of neat. You know, I broke my, you know, I wrecked my car today. God's love and kindness is everlasting. My yard is full of weeds. God's love and kindness is everlasting. You know, just whatever you're going through, just write your own version of that. I like to do that. Visit nature. Go outside. Find a new place. Go look at the, get some sunshine, hear the birds singing. You know, uh, meditate on passages about nature, like Psalm 19 or 8, whatever. Take a pilgrimage, maybe back to the place you were saved, you know, maybe some church or some location, maybe go back to that and just relive that experience. Study the names of God and meditate on them. There's a whole lot of them. Study the attributes of God. And it says daily reminders. That is like every time you see or pass a certain landmark, say, it can be a, a springboard to worship like, 
Say you go under a bridge every day on the way to work. That could be your reminder that Jesus is the bridge to God. Or you pass some big tree on the corner. That's a reminder that we're the branches and, and, you know, and God is the tree of life or something. Just find something that is a springboard to remind you to praise. These border buses are getting boring. I'm reading so many of them. Anyway, let's talk about worshiping through devastation when, it's really, when things really are bad. You know, God is still deserving to be worshiped. Sometimes hardships drive us away from God, and sometimes they bring us closer to God. If you let a hardship drive you away from God, then you won't learn what God is teaching you. And you may end up repeating the test. You ever feel like your life's a broken record? You ever have that feeling? You're just going through the same trials again and again. I can't see into your heart, but it could be that maybe you didn't learn what God was trying to teach you the last time you went through it. Just saying. Maybe that's the reason. I don't know. But uh, if you have that broken record feeling of your life, you know, I've been through this before. Why does it keep happening? Really be sensitive to God. What are you teaching me? What did I miss before? Help me to learn. Help me to apply what you want me to learn from this. We sometimes are prone to stop worshiping God during trials, but he's worthy to be worshiped even during bad circumstances. David had a son who passed away as a, as a, as a child, and it says he, uh, he still worshiped God. And then Job lost all ten of his kids, and he still worshiped God. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin or blame God. I guess that's just staggering to me, but it's, he can do it. Uh, towards the bottom, God never stops caring. I know when they were in the, the boat with Jesus, the, the 12 disciples, and the storm came up, and he was asleep. They said, they woke up and said, do you not care that we're perishing? I mean, often that God doesn't care. God stopped caring about me. He cares about those people, but not me. Well, he never stops caring, and you don't need to wake him up. But uh, he still deserves to be worshipped. The Bible was written by people who worshipped God. And there's, are these passages written down on your sheet? They're not? I'm sorry. I dropped the ball. Write down as many as you, they're also in the book, but uh, I'm not trying to make you buy that book. But uh, if you meditate on verses about worship, it helps you learn how to worship. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Just write some of these down as many as you can, and I'll, I'll just talk, I guess, a while. Where are you from? No. <laughs> I, should, I meant to write them down on the sheet. I'm sorry. I, I forgot for some reason. But I love, like, uh, what, when Paul worshipped, you know, passages about worship and, and David, they're very, very moving. i got to keep going. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> this is important. This is when we finally get to pinpointing and overcoming your obstacles. Very practical stuff, okay? And I want to make sure we all agree that the first thing we agree on is to be sure you're committed to having consistent quiet times at this stage of your life. Not just, you know, once a new job settles down or once the kids are out of the house or whatever. With that, that attitude, you'll never do it till you'll never get to know God until you're in heaven. So quickly, brainstorm, what are some, several things that hinder us from having consistent quiet times? External things and internal things. So what are, what are some of those things? Anybody? TV? TV what? Kids? Yeah? Wanting to sleep in. Social stuff. Okay. 
work? <laughs> yeah. Pinterest? Yeah, what? Exercise? Yeah. What would you say? Somebody said girls something? All the girls laughed. Okay. Facebook, you know. Nobody does Facebook anymore? Okay. And not to say those things are evil things, you know? We're not saying that. Nobody said, Robin Banks. <laughs> None of those things are really evil. I had a friend, and he said his biggest obstacle every day to having a quiet time was the sports page. He just would rather read that than the Bible. And, you know, that's true. So we're going to categorize these, I call them the four don't-haves, to help you overcome these, these things. And the uh, first one is you don't have the skills, okay? Second is you don't have the desire. Third is you don't have the time. And the fourth one is you don't have the discipline. I just can't make myself do it. I've got to read the sports page. Okay, you got those written down? I've got to be done by noon. We're almost done. We're getting there. First, we don't have the skills. The first, the first one. You don't need a PhD in quiet timeology to have a consistent. There isn't one, probably. but uh, basic skills are all you need to get started. Okay, and it's okay to start small. Remember, we talked about ACT, ACTS. Who remembers what that's? Who remembers what that stands for? Anybody? Adoration, confession, giving, supplica. Okay, pre R A Y. What does that stand for? Yeah, repentance, asking, actually, and yieldedness. Okay, P-R-E-S-E-N-T. Who remembers that one? That's a little harder. The promise to claim, rule to obey, example to follow, something God wants me to do, error to avoid, or a new thought about God himself. If you can remember some of those things, you've you got enough skills to get started right there. That's enough. And again, once you get in the habit, your skills will improve. Uh, you can read books, take classes like this. You can start a support group. Have a, call a friend. Say, you know, I'm trying to do this quiet time thing. Would you call me or email me every day or every other day and just ask me how I'm doing at it? It's okay. And you can support each other. You can ask other believers their advice on how they succeed in quiet times, you know. If, you're at the, if you want to have big arms and you... And you go to the gym, look for the guy with the biggest arms and do what he does. That's pretty simple. But if you meet somebody who's really godly and mature in their faith, ask them, how do you have a quiet time? What can I learn from that? Remember, if you, have to, if you use your skill, it improves. If you ignore your skill, it diminishes. I thought you were going to say something. <laughs> I thought you were going to speak. When you cleared your throat, I thought you were going to stand up and talk. It's okay. My, my mistake. Uh, remember, starting small is better than not starting at all. Okay, so a few, three minutes, five minutes at some point in the day is better than nothing at all. Second, you don't have the desire. This is probably the most important. Without desire, you'll never do it. And the desire to spend time with God is really the same as desire for God himself. It really is. It kind of gets back to the whole complacency thing. 
Remember the parable of the sower? We mentioned that earlier. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for Pinterest or other things, sports page, you know, TV, whatever, enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So other things is a huge category. It's massive. And it doesn't necessarily say sinful things. It says other things. When we talked earlier about anything, anything that comes before God is your God, that's other things, you know. And you have to ask yourself, what are those other things in, in your life? Because my list would not be the same as anybody else's list. Here's some ways to get the desire. Ask God for it. Elisha prayed for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And I loved Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. That means more than delighting yourself in other things, you know, like you know, TV or sports or whatever. You can wait for some disaster in your life, which will do the trick. It really will. But hopefully, <laughs> that's a bad technique. Uh, fellowship with zealous believers, like I mentioned before, just he walks with wise men will be wise. You ever heard the saying, uh, sticks burn more brightly together? but take one away from the fire and it goes out. We're like that too, you know. Be around zealous believers. Watermark's full of zealous Christians. And we, we burn more brightly together. Uh, one is, are the friends you hang out with pulling you down? I mean, seriously. Sometimes you can't escape, like, especially at work or neighbors, you can't always escape from those people. But the people you choose to be around, are they pulling you down? I don't know. Not that I'm looking not looking at my particular, but but if you're around people that pull you down, find some new friends. Gosh, you know. There's a saying, my best friend is the one who brings out the best in me. Do you have something like that in your life? Somebody you can be accountable with? And, okay. Uh, you can read biographies of zealous believers like these guys, Dawson Trotman, who started the, uh, the Navigators, I think. Billy Sunday, an evangelist. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, and so on. Uh, study the people study people in the Bible who were zealous for God like Paul, Joshua just find that guy and read about him in your life meditate on verses about desiring God here's a list of them right here uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God seek first his kingdom he satisfies the thirsty soul and so on and so on Paul said for, to me to live is Christ Psalm 73 says besides thee I desire nothing on earth and whom I buy in heaven but thee it's just a really great psalm. I'm trying to get done. I'm going kind of fast. Third, you don't have the time. That came up. Just, we're, just, we're all just busy all the time. This guy says, I like to find time with God, but I just don't have time. Let me explain. When you make a to-do list in the morning, you make all this list of stuff you want to do, then go back on that list and put a one, a two, or a three next to all those things. The ones are the things I absolutely must do. I've got to pay that light bill, or I've got to, you know, do this. I've got to make that flight at 3.30. Then the two is things I'd like to do, and three, things I'd, I'll do if everything, everything else gets done. You're prioritizing those things. And then go back and uh, ask, where does your quiet time fit in on this list? Or is, it make, is it something you absolutely must do, or is it something you do once everything else gets done? You know, that's a big difference. This is important. People don't say, I'm going to stop having quiet times. What they say is, I'll have it tomorrow. 
And they never say, I'm never going to start having quiet times. What they say is, I'll start tomorrow. That means you're not going to start, <laughs> basically. Remember this lovely picture from the <laughs> Jesus compared himself to the one food that goes stale the fastest. Okay? Don't forget that. You can't have today's quiet time tomorrow. You can't have tomorrow's quiet time today. Today's manna won't last until tomorrow. It goes stale. It starts breeding worms. Uh, you can't have one marathon toothbrushing session once a month, right? I know. <laughs> Any more than you can have one marathon quiet time once a month. It only works if you do it consistently. It's really how, how the thing works. It's like brushing your teeth. Uh, simplify your life. I don't know if you're a morning person, but a lot of people have it in the morning because it doesn't get bumped off the to-do list like it often does if you don't have it in the morning. God's available 24 hours a day. But... Uh, Mornings just simplify it and get it done, and once it's done, it's done. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, at the, bo- the bottom bullet point there, carve out your time from the least important things first. That's really important. Like, say you're a family, don't say, I'm going to start having quiet times, and I'm going to carve it out from the time I spend with my kids. That's not where to start. I'm going to carve it out from the time I spend on Pinterest. Or on Facebook, or watching uh, you know Seinfeld reruns, or Love Boat reruns, or whatever you like to watch. I don't know. I don't watch Love Boat reruns. Oh, I didn't like it the first time. <laughs> Why would I want to watch it again? Uh, <laughs> but carve it from the least important things first. Okay. This gets back to the prioritizing. It's really it's really interesting. If you look at these people, how they spent time with with God. Did they give it a one, a two, or a three? Jesus in, in Mark 1, it said he got up before the sun came up, went off to a lonely place and was praying there. Even though people were searching for him, he was, oh, you're taking pictures. Of, look, they're taking pictures of the screen. I should have just put on this sheet. That makes sense. That's smart. That's good. Technology, better living through. Uh, David, the next one said, he wouldn't end his day without time with God. He wasn't going to give sleep to his eyelids or slumber, slumber to his eyelids until I find a place for God. And then in Psalm 119, David said he got eye strain from, from reading God's Word. When was the last time you got eye strain from reading the Bible so long? Anybody? Lately? I don't know. Uh, Peter, that's this in Matthew 26, that was the... Uh, I keep pointing my screen. You can see it. I'm sorry. There, Peter. Uh... That's when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I'll keep watch with my eyes closed, that whole thing. Jesus told him to pray, and he just took a nap instead. Let me sleep first, then I'll pray. How about that? But then, after the, re- after the crucifixion and the resurrection in John 21, Jesus appeared on the, on the bank of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the lake, and Peter was the first one to dive in and swim to him. That was his top priority, right? He kind of changed his, finally changed his priorities. Then Mary and Martha, and the next one, I'd say Mary had a number one, and Martha, like, once I get all the cooking done, then I'll spend time with Jesus, but not until then. She kind of had it backwards. Moses, we talked about him, how he let ministry crowd out. It's time for God in Exodus 18. Remember the paralytic who they lowered through the roof? He wasn't going to let anything stop him. He was a number one. Bartimaeus, uh, the guy who was blind, 
Nothing and no one was going to stop him from getting close to Jesus. And he yelled out. And they said, you be quiet. But he yelled out even more. Then the three worldly men, they all said, we're going to follow Jesus starting tomorrow. Remember those guys? And that story in Luke 9. They all said they were going to do it after they do something else. That kind of had, they, had, they had like number two and three priorities. Anyway. Okay, I'm going to move on. You might want to take a picture of the screen. You can. If you, okay, here we go. Fourth is you don't have the discipline. Uh, a lot of people have discipline in other areas, like, you know, they'll run marathons or, you know, whatever, but they can't seem to make themselves want to put their quiet time above other things. It could often be a lack of desire, and discipline is rooted in conviction, so do you really think a quiet time is important? If you think it's important, often you'll find the discipline. And remember, discipline is available from God, Second Timothy 1.7 He's not giving us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. It's available, supernaturally. Where does discipline come from? Self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit, mentioned in Galatians 5. You ever heard the deeper the roots, the sweeter the fruits? A little poem there. Uh, the fourth one down. The goal is to be consistent, not fanatical. So you can't spend an hour with the Lord? Can you spend five minutes? Just look at it that way. Spend the time you have as much as you can. Start start out with a few minutes and it'll grow. And also make it fun and interesting so you don't dread it or have to force yourself to do it. As an exercise, variety helps. The funner it is, the less discipline it takes. Again, form a support or accountability group. Call each other daily if you need to. Get in a routine without getting in a rut. If you're in a rut, rethink your quiet time, alter it, be flexible. Remember the, the taco, the chalupa, and the taco salad I showed you? Mix it up. Try a new shape. Try something else. This is something I encourage people to do. Piggyback your quiet time on something you do every day anyway. I, had a lady, I knew a lady, and she said, as soon as I get back from walking the dog, the next thing I do, I go straight to the Bible and have my quiet time right then. It's just automatic, like a no-brainer. If I do that, I know I'm going to do the the quiet time because it's the next thing I do. Maybe it's making coffee or feeding your fish or brushing your teeth. Whatever you do every day, have your quiet time just after that. Also, as a reward for yourself, I call it a built-in egg timer. Give yourself a a snack or a cup of coffee or a glass of tea and and use that while you're reading the Bible. And you say, I'm going to read the Bible as long until that coffee cup's empty. A little built-in timer, you might say. Also a reward. I want to talk about this. You have to ask yourself a hard question. Are you a spiritual sluggard? Is that you in the corner down there? It's a hard question to ask, but there's a lot of spiritual sluggards in churches today. Proverbs talked about sluggards, and it gives some of the hallmarks of it. He says, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the open road, a lion's in the open square. And and the commentary there, the sluggard constantly makes excuses and exaggerates his obstacles. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard is lazy and has plenty of time for sleep, but not much else. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but he's wary of bringing it to his mouth again. He can have opportunity and nourishment right at his fingertips, but he's too lazy to bring it to his mouth. That's what a sluggard is. And the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. He's not only lazy but pompous and doesn't see his own need for instruction. 
Now, speaking of nourishment, you can have spiritual nourishment at your fingertips, but be too lazy to feed yourself. You see it every day. I've been there. So don't be a spiritual sluggard. What else? So, which of the four is your biggest struggle? Skills, desire, time, or discipline? Anybody? Discipline? Okay. That's a tough one. What? Oh, the skills? Yeah, you do now. You got them. You got enough to start. You never stop improving your skills until until you die, but you got enough to start. Okay, who has any questions or comments or anything? Okay, right here. The question is, can I send you the notes? Uh, other than what you have there, you mean? the? Oh, uh, if you can... Well, one, they're in the book. <laughs> so that's really where they are. This is like a micro-thimble version of the book. I know there's a lot to put in here, but that's where, you, that's where to get them, really. Okay. Anything? A question over here, yeah. Oh, I wish I knew. No. How do people discipline yourselves to get up in the morning to read scripture before work? How do you do it? You can do it every single day consistently. Your body learns to get it. Your body will learn. You retrain your body to... And coffee. Become addicted to coffee. Yeah. The, the, wait, before we go on, any other, any other reason, ways to do it? Anybody? So once you started at one time and from then on, anybody have any other comments before we go to the next question? How do you wake up? Yeah, here's an old Indian trick. Drink a huge glass of water before you go to bed, then you have to get up and go to the bathroom earlier. That's true. Or the, <laughs> I have your quiet time in the middle of the night when you get up and go to the bathroom. <laughs> okay, other question. I see. Somebody, I saw a hand. You answered the question already? Okay. No. Did you have a question or were you going to? A comment. Okay. That, that's okay. No, there's no mandate. It has to be in the morning. So listen to her. You, well, you know, don't beat yourself up. If morning doesn't work for you, then listen to her. Evenings, God's still there on the throne at, at 6 o'clock at night. It's just like 6 in the morning. Yeah. You know, I, I do this. I have like a, you know, a, a skydiver has a spare parachute. I like my main quiet time in the morning. Then I have a little spare mini quiet time at night. You know, shortly before I go to bed, review some memorized scripture, pray. Just so if, I forget, if for something happens and I don't like the morning one, I've got that spare parachute, you know, in the evening. So, do you have a question? Okay. Okay. 
I saw another hand back here. The question is how to get kids involved in quiet times. Oh, at what age? Oh. Well, that's a good question. I think uh, once they learn to read, there's some really good kids' Bibles, kids' story Bibles and picture Bibles. And they'll, if they're fun, they'll read them. Make it, I'd say make it fun and kids will do it at any age, you know? They start playing piano at like four, so I guess, you know. Now, is that scripture? What is Jesus calling? It's from the perspective of Jesus, and it's a scripture, and then he explains it and how to apply it. Ah, okay. 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 Uh, there's a, I know there's a Bible called the Adventure Bible, and there's a whole lot of, any Christian bookstore has tons of stuff for kids. Tapes, or CDs, and Books and all kinds of games. And there's online stuff. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Oh, internal, like laziness. Internal hindrances to a quiet time. Laziness, lack of desire, uh, pride. Uh, like external are like kids, noises. You know, uh, stuff like that. Internal stuff. I just don't want to do it. I can't make myself do it. That kind of stuff. Denial. Denial. Yeah, not wanting to, want to face God. I think when we're like at odds with God, like those magnets, you want to shut yourself off from all sources of the light, really, and avoid it. And sometimes you'll be around somebody that just, they, they, want, to go to, they want to go to church, they don't want to read the Bible. They're in, in rebellion towards God, and they, they've turned them, their magnet has turned around, you might say, and they're... They're just fighting God like that. Okay. Any other comments or questions? Okay. Well, we have... Here's a resource if you want to check it out. If you, if you want to... Uh, no, nuts. It's, if you want to, like, teach this in your... In your... Uh, what? <laughs> if you want to teach it in your community group... There's a website here, and the reason I want to show it is right here under Leader's Guides. There's a Leader's Guide for all for seven different chapters, and you can just print them out. They're free, and it'll take you through it, and what tells you what to bring, how to prepare, how to keep the discussion going. And uh, that's just lesson one right there, lesson two. And uh, it's just a good resource to have if you want to, if you want to use this as a, as a resource to teach it to your to your community group. And then next one. Uh, there's an evaluation form that I need to pass out. I lost them. Hey there. Uh, Two favorite. Just pass these around. Just start there. And please be as informative and detailed as you can be. I know I'm trying to make it better. Uh, I talk too fast. I mumble. I mutter. I know that. But you can write it anyway. I'm sorry, I'll go back one. She's <laughs> That's good. But uh, you can print them out. 
And they had, I think they had two books left at the break. I don't know if there are any left. Or, anyway, a personalized note from me. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Just, it's just when you fill them out, uh, I guess just drop them on the table on the way out. Thank you. Oh, another question? The very first slide that had scriptures? Oh, this one? That one? Before this? Oh, that okay. That's verses of verses on worship, and uh, you can meditate on those. Sometimes, if I if I struggle with like worry or you know doubt, if you study that as a topic or study people who st- struggle with the same thing in the Bible, it's a good way to, to do that. This is a new phenomenon to me. People taking pictures of the screen. I never occurred to me to do that. That helps. Okay, another question. Yeah. The devastation, that one? There you go. Yeah. I tried to cram too much stuff in. That's probably something you could all crit- crit- put down there, but usually I this I usually what I do is for a Bible study, I like spread this out over seven weeks like an hour and a half a time. And I tried to cram the whole thing into like two and a half hours today. So that's why everybody's having to <laughs> catch up. <laughs> like Todd, you know, he spews it out. And... 